In the last few weeks, well, my last few weeks there in the pulpit, we've been looking at faith in the Gospels, how Jesus understood and taught faith in the Gospels. We've been looking at miracles and signs and what they meant to Jesus. Needless to say, when we often talk about faith, we don't mean necessarily the same thing Jesus meant. When we think about signs and wonders or healings or miracles, we may not always understand them the way that Jesus understood them. And that's all right. It's just that I figure he had a better understanding of faith and miracles than I do. That's just been my experience so far. So, I hope to get my mind kind of aligned with the mind of Christ. Today I want to talk about evangelism. In a sermon I entitled, Doing Evangelism Backwards. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would make it be a sword of fire and light within us, that you would shape us and transform us by your word, how we think, how we understand, how we do, that you would be honored in and through even us. In Jesus' name, amen. Evangelism. We all know who, how that works, right? You know, you uh, get some gospel tracts. You go out to public places and hand them out to complete strangers. Maybe you read them the four spiritual laws or flip through your Bible, giving them the Roman road. Or maybe you get one of those little uh, tracts. It's the little chick tracts. The little, you remember the chick tracts, the ones that are like little comic books? Um, or you invite them to a crusade with a dynamic speaker. Ask them if they want to commit their lives to Jesus right now. Um, once they receive Jesus, we expect that they are immediately going to experience love, joy, and peace of salvation, right? And if that doesn't work, then sing them 27 verses of Just As I Am. <laughs> but Jesus told us how to do it, and it doesn't look like that at all. Evangelism according to Jesus. Page one, going ahead of Jesus. Following Jesus meant, well, following Jesus. <laughs> Literally, the disciples walked everywhere with him probably kind of stringing along behind him. 
They ate with him. They prayed with him. They watched his healings and his exorcisms. They listened to his teaching again and again and again and again as he went from place to place to place. They also ran errands. They would procure food. They were sent ahead to prepare the way for his arrival. Now there, we would assume they'd let folks know that Jesus was coming. They would meet those who wanted to meet him, maybe even those that wanted to host him in their homes and get that all lined up. They learned which villages weren't interested at all so Jesus wouldn't waste his time going where he wasn't wanted in the first place. Usually, Jesus sent out the twelve. But Luke reports that on at least one occasion, he sent out 70 of his disciples. Two by two, 35 teams of two to prepare his next mission circuit. So we find their instructions in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Let's turn to Luke 10, 1 through 12. <clears throat> After this, the Lord appointed 70 others sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Jewish rabbis said that there were 70 nations in the world. No, that was not a scientific count. Seven is the number of creation, seven days. 
Ten is the number of all your fingers, so it symbolizes completeness. Seventy would symbolize, therefore, all of the peoples that God created. So when Jesus sends out 70 disciples out of the many hundreds he had, when he sends out 70, it's a symbolic, well, maybe I should say prophetic action. It's a prophetic action. He's claiming not just Israel, but all nations of the world for the kingdom of God. And he anticipates the world mission to come, the one that's coming after he is raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit is poured out on his followers. So make no mistake, the kingdom of God is at hand, coming to a town near you, for good or ill. Now, Jesus' mission instructions were remembered and passed down for 20, 30 years before they were written down, not just out of historical nostalgia for, you know, for what happened back then, but because they were meaningful and they were relevant to the life of Christian believers and their mission right now. Remember, they'd, they'd remember these things and say, you know, I'm trying to deal with this and say, well, you know, Jesus said. And they would pass this on to help shape and understand what they were doing. Just like, now we'll flip open a book and find a verse that speaks to us. They had to do it out of their memory, but ultimately it's the same difference. So, and this particular section served as kind of a mission handbook for Jesus' disciples and their disciples and their disciples after them as they continued to tramp from town to town with the good news of the kingdom of God, which was now made all the more powerful and relevant and urgent through the crucifixion, and resurrection of the Savior. These words remained relevant for doing evangelism then. They're still relevant for how you and I should do evangelism now. So let me draw some implications already from this. There's going to be, I think I've got nine points in this. Nine, not nine pages, nine points, okay? <sighs> Rest assured. Let's see, he takes ten minutes per point, per page. I see it. Mm-hmm. He's getting us ready. He's getting us ready, so we'll be so glad when he goes, right? Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness, I hope the new preacher... Preach you shorter sermons, right? Okay. See, it's part of my job. You know, make you look forward to the new guy. So anyway, so let me draw a few implications from what we've just already read and looked at. First, wherever you go, 
you are merely going ahead of Jesus to prepare the way of the Lord. He is coming after you. You are there to let people know that he is coming there imminently to them personally. Second, whenever believers move into a a new neighborhood, uh, a new town, a new country, or go to an unreached uh, people group like Walmart, um, When we go there to a new place or a new surroundings or new people, you and I are staking Jesus' rightful claim on them for the kingdom of God, whether they like it or not. (laughs) Page two, they love me, they love me not. This, this kingdom mission already does not look quite like what we have come to expect. There's no public arena, no massed choir, no flyers, no tracts, no preparatory prayer vigils. We hear nothing of soapbox preaching, not even an invitation. They go from village to village, from house to house. They live simply, they have nothing, they carry nothing, no shoes, well that'll work in Virginia Beach I guess, but no shoes, no wallet, no money, can't get much simpler than that. As they meet people along the way, they are either received and welcomed into their homes, or they're not, and that is essentially it. That's it. Jesus says, whatever house you enter, speak out peace, shalom, to those who dwell there. And if a child of peace is there, your peace, the peace of Christ, will rest upon them. If not, the peace returns to you. And presumably, then, you move on to the next place. That is, the people you meet will either have a heart for the things of God, they may not know him yet, but they have a heart for the things of God, or they won't. You don't have to make folks love God. Good luck with that one. You don't have to argue and persuade them to change their minds. You certainly don't pressure them against their will. You merely represent the grace and the the compassion, the truth, the honesty of Jesus. You live with integrity of Jesus. And how they respond to you as Jesus' representative reveals the fundamental inclination of their hearts. Now, the key word is receive. You know, 
if they receive you, if they don't receive you. Sometimes that's translated welcome in many uh, versions of the Bible. In our understanding of evangelism, we're trying to get people to receive Jesus. And, you know, we know what we mean by that. It's kind of Christian jargon. We know what we mean by that. There are people out there now, young people in particular, who have no idea what that means. Good luck trying to explain it to them. It's hard. But Jesus said, it is enough if they receive you. Did you notice that in the text? It's enough if they receive you. Jesus once explained, you'll find this in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Your calling is to so live out the heart and the new life of Jesus that others can see him in you. And when they welcome you into their Maybe it's their home, but it may just be into their sphere, into their friendship circle or whatever. When they welcome you, they're welcoming Jesus in as well. And when they welcome in Jesus through you, they're welcoming in the Father as well. You see, you, Jesus and the Father, <coughs> in God's eyes, it's a package deal. Okay, how about where folks do not receive you? Because he, Jesus assumes that's going to happen sometimes. I can attest it is true. That could mean opposition, it could mean persecution, it could mean you get fired. It could mean that they simply avoid or ignore you. You see, where there is clearly no welcome, the peace of Christ is not shared. It returns to you, and the offer of salvation is withdrawn. The worker... By the way, Jesus never calls us missionaries or evangelists. We're always called workers, which also means the same as field hands. So you and I are field hands for the kingdom out there in the harvest. That the field hand, the worker, <clears throat> is when they're not received, simply is told to go on out to the edge of the city limits and there symbolically brush the very dust off your feet. It's a curse gesture. That is, the residents are then given over to the coming wrath of God. Hard to admit, but that's sort of the flip side. The moment of judgment has come, 
and they shut their eyes, they shut their ears, didn't want to have anything to do with it, and with that they have felled the verdict of heaven upon themselves. And what remains is simply the sentence to be carried out at the end of time. Throughout the Gospel of John, you read, you know, the, the hour is coming and now is. The judgment has come. That's what he's talking about. When they turn their back on you and your Jesus, that is the moment of judgment, the crisis. And that was their choice. God's kingdom means hope and salvation. But it also brings with it accountability and consequences. Just saying. Therefore, third, this is our third principle, you are to identify so thoroughly with Jesus and the kingdom of God that people will respond to you the same way they would respond to Jesus. Yet remember, Jesus imitates what he sees the Father doing. I see the Father doing, I do what the Father does. Jesus imitates what he sees the Father doing, you imitate what you see Jesus doing. Ideally, those you impact should be able to imitate Jesus by imitating you. You realize what a responsibility that is. I mean, Paul says that, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about here. They should be able to imitate Jesus by imitating what they see in you. You embody Jesus for them. You embody the new life in the kingdom of God. Fourth, just like they did to Jesus, some folks will receive you and embrace the good news of the kingdom, and some will not receive you. It just is. So unless you smell bad, act really weird, or put your pet politics or your aromatherapy or your knowledge of essential oils ahead of Jesus, unless you do any of that, don't take it too hard if they resist the good news. If they dismiss you, if they ignore you, love them anyway. Keep going. There are others just waiting to see Jesus in you and to hear some good news. Find them. As one preacher put it, he learned early in his ministry that as he preached, there would be some people where they, they would be interested and you could see the bright eyes from the pulpit. Of course, in this pulpit, I can't see anything. That's something different, though. But you can see the bright eyes, and then there are other people who just kind of sit there going through the motions, and they're sort of staring into space, and you know they're thinking about what they're going to have for Sunday lunch. 
And his advice was, preach to the bright eyes. Preach to the bright eyes. Preach to those who want to hear it. You know, if God has a, in his timing someone else, someone he wants to come in later, then he'll send the right person to, that, to them who can show them Jesus the right way. You may just not be the right person yet. That's okay. The right worker yet. That's okay. Love them anyway. Keep going. Find the ones who will respond. Page three. Instruction manual for mission. Well, what do you do when people do receive you? How do we do mission among the willing, the interested, the curious? Let's look at Jesus saying there in verses 8 and 9 once again. Jesus says, whenever you enter a town, enter a town and its people welcome you or receive you, eat what is set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That is, there are three things that you and I are supposed to do which correspond to the three central pillars of Jesus' own earthly ministry. Eat, heal, and preach. Eat, heal, and preach. First, eat. Yes, church people eat all the time. At the drop of a hat, we'll have an excuse for a meal, right? Prayer breakfasts, cover dish suppers, receptions. That's all right. We're just imitating Christ. He did most of his teaching over a meal or around a table. As Jesus walked from place to place, he was dependent upon the customers the customary hospitality of Middle Eastern homes, and curious rabbis and grateful tax collectors alike would invite him into their homes for food and maybe overnighting. When he sent out his disciples, they were to carry nothing with him, uh, no wallet, no money, no bag for provision. That means they can't provide for themselves. They cannot live separate from the folks around them. They have to interact with them or go hungry. There was a purpose in this. They had to interact. Hunger would drive, as I always said when I was learning German, hunger drives a man to strange things, like learning to talk in, some, in a language he doesn't know. Now, that can be kind of funny sometimes. I, I always remember when I went into a restaurant and I, I wanted to order a cup of coffee, and the word for a cup is tasse, and a tasse cafe. And I ordered, I was still kind of sorting sounds out, and I ordered a Natasha cafe, which means a pocket full of coffee. <laughs> but, you know, I was forced to interact with the people and they would interact with me. Our culture no longer perpetuates such a, a tradition and, of hospitality, and we suffer from social isolation as a result. This is the isolation we see in our culture 
may have been accelerated by the whole pandemic thing, but it was started 40 years ago when we lost a tradition of, hosp of gracious hospitality. So what it means, we might not live like our forebears in the faith. We certainly do not tend to live as destitute as our forebears. Nevertheless, and this is our fifth point, you and I are expected and required by Jesus to interact with other people. That is, to be hospitable toward others and graciously receive their hospitality toward us as we embody Jesus and the kingdom for them. Now, the wandering disciples, I have to expand this one of those points a little bit, the wandering disciples don't just eat what they like. Jesus specifically says, eat whatever is set before you. Eat whatever is set before you. I remember... I, re I remember the date I was going to visit a church for the first time. There was going to be a big get-together, a big dinner, and Cece was told that you know, this, this man had, uh, he raised sheep and goats, and she had sheep and goats as pets when she was growing up, and so she was so looking forward to getting out and playing with the goats. And she got there and discovered they were on the menu. I, 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 poor woman, I don't think she's recovered from that one yet. But what it means for Jesus is a disciple of Jesus does not first ask whether this is a Jewish or a Gentile household. If they receive you, Go there, fellowship with them, eat whatever they set before you. You can't pick and choose between kosher and unclean foods. Eat whatever is set before you. Wherever hospitality is graciously offered, it is to be graciously received with thanks. Be a vehicle of grace. This may be all they have, they, or they may consider this a great, their greatest delicacy. I have suffered through a few meals I would, I would rather be able to forget. But I want to be gracious like Jesus is gracious. Here, of course, Jesus is completely rupturing the whole Pharisaic concept of religious cleanness, in the kingdom of God, love and kindness are more important than any kind of religious or cultural nitpicking. So sixths, I've run out of extra fingers on one hand, so you have to pretend. Sixths, you embody Jesus and the kingdom by extending the grace of God even to those who are different from you 
who might be unacceptable by the standards of society or by the standards of the church. You don't have to make anybody acceptable to Jesus. You bring Jesus to them and he'll change them as he wishes in his good time. As the old saying, you just catch them, he'll clean them. One other thing about eating. In biblical thinking, covenants are ratified with a meal. You eat together, it creates unbreakable bonds between people. It's significant that this is the first thing, the first thing that Jesus' followers are supposed to do. Before we preach, or before we do anything else, so seventh then, create a relationship, a human-to-human bond before you share the good news of Jesus. Before you share the good news of Jesus, give them a reason to listen, to hear, to believe what you say before you try to say it. Can you see that? First create that bond. Now the next thing that Jesus says to do is to heal the sick. Notice, still haven't preached yet. Instead, you embody the kingdom of God. And where you go, salvation is happening for some. Judgment may be happening for others. That's what happens. You know, it's like a magnet. A magnet can attract or repel. It's not even intentional. It just does. And that sphere of salvation in which you move, you better be moving, that sphere of salvation, it's as if it surrounds you like a cloud or like a bubble or maybe like a force field or I like to imagine a magnetic field. You're surrounded by this magnetic field. And where people receive you, They are drawn within the field, drawn within the bubble. And the power of God's salvation starts working in and around them. Now, one distinctive aspect of the kingdom of God is that whatever else it might entail, there is no more sickness, disability, decay, or death. So it means that you bring healing wherever you go. It's there within that force field, within that bubble. Now, I'm well aware that not everyone I pray for every time gets healed on the spot. You would hear about that if it did. It's probably a good thing it doesn't, for me at least. Some people are healed. Others might be healed later. Some might be healed in heaven. But Jesus has told us, and this is eighth, 
embody a sphere of healing for body, mind, and spirit wherever you go. Offer to pray for everyone you meet. Ask your waitress if there's anything you can pray for her about. Um, Whatever, can I pray for you? Be a circle of healing. Be a magnetic field of healing. If you never pray for anybody, never offer, you'll never see anyone healed either. Just saying. So only after you've established a relationship with someone and allowed healing and salvation to begin flowing into his or her life, only then do you finally preach the kingdom of God. You notice that's the last thing you do according to Jesus. You know, people will wonder, who is this guy? Why is he like the way he is? Why do you do what you do? What makes you so different from everybody else? And you'll have an opportunity to tell them, and that's ninth. Once they've seen it, then you can explain it. Do I hear an amen? Page four, doing evangelism backwards. At this year's General Assembly, we were outside Detroit. Boy, is that a place that needs healing. Church, Church growth specialist Ed Stetzer explained how what he called Punctilinear evangelism was falling from the scene, just disappearing. Punctilinear. It means that it happens at a specific point in time, along a timeline. It's the kind of evangelism when someone Oh, here's an evangelist on a street corner or at a tent revival or a Billy Graham crusade. You know, when someone is just, you know, they're down and they turn on the TV and it happens to be Billy Graham or somebody on TV and they hear the gospel and they're struck by the message like a sudden bolt out of the blue. They're, they walk the aisle or they get down on their knees and make a life-changing commitment to Christ. It's a moment in time along a timeline. Hear the gospel, respond, boom. Now, Ed Stetzer observed that while this kind of thing still happens, it's becoming rarer. It's happening less and less and less. Instead, what's happening is that people are coming to faith in Christ through long-term relationships long-term relationships, you know, frequent long conversations over food, you know, praying together until they learn to pray for themselves on their own. This is completely backwards from the way that we've been told and have assumed evangelism should be done, you know, first, first preach, then salvation, then fellowship. It's backwards. 
first fellowship, then salvation starts working within them and working around them, and then you explain what's happening. This is relationship evangelism. This is lifestyle evangelism. They have to see it in you before they're able to hear and believe it, before it makes sense. People begin to experience that sphere of salvation before they understand its basis in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and what this new life in the kingdom of God is all about. So let me review the kingdom principles of evangelism according to Jesus. One, wherever you go, you're merely going ahead of Jesus to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to be following. You are there to let folks know he's coming there imminently to them personally. Secondly, whenever believers move into a new neighborhood, new town, new country, unreached people group, you know where, you and I are staking Jesus' rightful claim on them for the kingdom of God, whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not. Thirdly, you are to identify so thoroughly with Jesus and the kingdom of God that people will respond to you the same way they would respond to Jesus. Fourth, just like they did to Jesus, some folks will receive you and embrace the good news of the kingdom, and some will not receive you. It just is. Fifth, you and I are expected to interact with other people, to be hospitable toward others, and to welcome their hospitality graciously toward us as we embody Jesus and the kingdom for them. Six, you embody Jesus and the kingdom by extending the grace of God even to those who are really, really different from you, who might be unacceptable by the standards of society or even by the standards of the church. Seventh, create a relationship, a human-to-human bond before you try to share the good news with them. Eighth, pray with and for others generously and embody a sphere of healing for body, mind, and spirit wherever you go. And ninth, once they've seen it, then you can explain it then they can understand it. But you say, oh, but doesn't evangelism require preaching first? I mean, they have to hear the gospel, then believe, then receive salvation. Well, well, yes, but, you know, the gospel can be preached and is sometimes preached best without many words. And in a skeptical age like ours, I think it's understandable that folks want to see it first. So show them something worth wanting. Show them something 
worth wanting. Would you repeat that word, that saying with me? So show them something worth wanting. Let us pray. Jesus, we want to share your word and your promises, your truth with other people, but we go we go around it backwards so often. And we get in our own way. We get in your way. Lord, we ask that you would touch each heart here, that we would have no other desire but to so identify with Jesus that others can see him in us in ways that make them want him. We're in a very sad and lonely age. Make us the workmen and the field hands, the harvesters you need in such a time as ours. To your glory, your praise, and for the glory of your kingdom alone. And all God's people said, amen.